Uh, good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, if you got a Bible with you, grab that right now and be in First Peter chapter four. If you got a physical Bible, I know some of you have that. Uh, you can also use your phones, digital. Uh, version of the Bible as we um, continue our First Peter series. For those of you who don't know me, maybe new to the YA scene, my name is Brian Howard. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to be here with you tonight and, and looking forward to really what we're going to do uh, is we're going to this week be in First Peter 4. Next week, we're going to be in First Peter 5 and finish out our First Peter series. Uh, and then we'll hit the summer and we'll be doing some different things that we'll be talking about in a few weeks here. But really, we're coming to the close uh, of this letter we've been working through in the back half of the spring, really trying to understand what Peter has to say to us. And I think tonight is one of those significant messages um, that if you were to pick of all the different messages you might want to hear, it's probably not the one you would pick. But oftentimes, the thing we wouldn't pick is the thing we actually need. And so tonight, I want to start off um, by considering a phrase... Um, that's kind of popular maybe in culture, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've thought it, um, maybe you've believed it, and here's the phrase, um, that people never change. People never change. Now, we like this phrase because it's comforting to us. It's actually comforting us to have the idea that people don't ever change, so they're stable and they're static, and it makes the world predictable, and so we really like the phrase, people never change, but, but here's what I hope your observation of the world actually is. People change all the time. People change. People change in disastrous ways. Maybe you had a friend who was once awesome but is now not so awesome. Maybe you have someone you used to hang out with but now you don't want to hang out with. So people change. But people change in beautiful ways. Man, as a pastor, I've seen people get sober and walk away from alcohol that was destroying their lives. I've seen people who are just completely reckless and irresponsible get married, have babies, and hold down a job and build a life. But like I've seen this happen. People change all the time. And if I didn't believe that from my experience in life, I would have to believe that by the witness of the scripture. See, see, tonight what we're gonna look at is what Peter has to say uh, about a certain aspect of life. And, and here's one of the things I want us to remember about Peter. Remember, First Peter isn't just like a random book written by a random person. We know almost all of Peter's story when it comes to Jesus. And here's what we need to remember when we get to First Peter chapter four, that Peter was a follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus, he walked with Jesus, he was one of the first 12 who went with Jesus wherever he went. He was one of the closest people to Jesus, he learned about Jesus, he saw all the miracles, he was with Jesus through everything. He was one of the 12. But then here's the next two things you need to know about Peter, and any of you who grew up in church, you know the story. Peter abandoned Jesus to avoid suffering. Like the story goes like this, Jesus gets arrested by the authorities, and all of his disciples stand up and say, we will die with you. No, that's not what happened, right? All of his disciples were like, we're out. And they ran away and they scattered. They're like, we don't want to be arrested. We don't want to be killed. So he abandons Jesus. And then even worse, it says he denied Jesus to avoid shame. Like Peter is asked three times, do you know that man? The guy he's been hanging out with for three years, like his best buddy, his mentor, his Lord, his king. And he's like, I don't even know who that is. He denies Jesus to avoid shame. And if the claim that people never change was true, you would assume that Peter went the rest of his life running from suffering, and hiding from shame. But that is not what Peter does. In fact, tonight we're going to learn that Peter teaches us that suffering and shame for the sake of Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Peter 4 tonight. Like the same guy who just saw like Roman soldiers coming, where he's like, I'm out, I'm running. The same guy who denied even know Jesus because he didn't want the shame getting heaped upon him is going to write the words you're about to hear tonight. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So you'll notice Peter is talking about a fiery ordeal that these Christians are going through. Now, now this might just be a metaphor for the tough stuff that they go through as people oppose them as Christians. 
Some commentators actually think it's referring to Nero's Rome, where Nero set Rome on fire and it's burning, and then he blamed the Christians. And then in order to blame the Christians and punish the Christians, he would actually take Christians, tie them to a stake, and light them on fire as human torches. And we're not sure exactly what Peter's referring to here, but here's what's clear. Christians in the first century were getting killed, were getting jailed, were getting burned alive, were getting mocked and belittled and thrown out of society's Christians were hated for following Jesus. And this is something that Christians in the first century understood, and it is something that Christians in the 21st century almost never understand. But like, I need us to be clear on this. I want to say it this way. Most Christians assume that if we follow Jesus right, people will love us. Most people assume, most Christians assume if we follow Jesus right, the world will love us. And so the assumption is if I'm good enough, if I'm enough like Jesus, if I'm a faithful enough follower of Jesus, if I'm good enough, if God, I'm faithful enough, everyone's going to love me. But, But here's what I want you to know. That is not the assumption of the New Testament. And that is not the assumption of the very Jesus you claim to follow. Here's what I want you to know. The Bible assumes that if we follow Jesus right, the world will hate us. The world will hate us. And again, I'm speaking to those of you who are Christians tonight, and I'm just reminding you that there is no kind of Christianity where you can get everyone to like you. And some of us have this fool's errand where we just think if we tweak Christianity a little or change some of the rougher parts around the edges, everyone will start loving us, everyone will adore us, no one will make fun of us, no one will exclude us, and it's a fool's errand. It never works. It never works. So if you're a Christian here tonight, I just want you to know that if you follow Jesus, the world will hate you. And if you're here not in Christian, you're not a Christian. And I don't assume everyone in this room does follow Jesus. Tonight, here's the coolest thing for you. This sermon puts no pressure on you. When I say it puts no pressure on you, I'm speaking to Christians tonight. And so if you're not a believer and you're in the room and you're just kind of checking this out, I want you to hear what we Christians believe about the world and why the world hates us and what the world does toward us. I want you to understand that. But I also want you to understand where that comes from and maybe even where that's come from in you. See, most Christians assume if we follow Jesus right, the world would love us. But the Bible assumes if we follow Jesus right, the world will hate us. The world will despise us. The world will make fun of us and look down upon us. I want to ask a question tonight. Why do people hate Jesus and his followers? Why do people hate Jesus? Why in ancient Rome did they take followers of Jesus and throw them to lions and light them on fire? Why are there parts of the world today, including places I visited in the last two months, where Christians have to go underground because if the government finds out that they're planting churches, they will get thrown in jail, dismembered, and killed? Why do people hate Jesus and his followers? Now, the popular answer in our generation might be this, because Jesus and his followers, or Jesus' followers, have not acted much like Jesus. Like Maybe the answer to that question for you is the reason people hate Jesus' followers is because they're actually wicked at times. And here's just what I want to stand here and say before you tonight. You are absolutely right. Like never for a moment, and I'm going to downplay, the wicked, awful, horrible things that have been done in the name of God. And you shouldn't either. If someone confronts you on that, there should not be a moment where you downplay or pretend it wasn't that bad or kind of brush it off or be like, whatever. No, no, no. We need to confess and repent when we sin. We need to turn from it. And if other Christians sin, we need to point at it and call it what it is. All right, all right, so there's no downplaying that. But then I also want to point this out. I want to point out that the sin that Christians commit, the shocking thing about Christians is not that they commit sin because everyone commits sin. Like You cannot point to a religion or a non-religion or a philosophy or an ideology in the world that does not sin. So when people say, I can't follow Jesus because Christians sin, I go, where else are you looking? Like, What else are you looking at? Again, I can condemn a Christian sin and say that is wrong, that is wicked, needs to be repented of and called out. And at the same time, 
There's a reason that goes deeper than just Christians have behaved badly over the years. Why do people hate Jesus and his followers? Here's my contention for you tonight. Because the central claim of Jesus is that he is Lord. That he is king. The central claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus is in charge. So imagine this. In the ancient Roman Empire, uh, the ancient Romans had a phrase. And this phrase was well known amongst everyone. Throughout the Roman Empire, you can't grow up without hearing the phrase. In fact, it was inscribed on their money. It was kind of like this. You know how you take out like a dollar bill and it says, in God we trust? Well, here, they had these money. And this is the denarius here. And on the denarius, here's what it says if you can't read it down there. It's a picture of Caesar. And it says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius. This is the emperor. This is the guy who's in charge of the whole Roman Empire. And here's what it says. Son of the divine Augustus. Here's what everyone in the Roman Empire knew. That Caesar, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, was the divine son of God. Caesar Augustus Tiberius was the divine son of God and the Lord and king over all things. And then you've got these Christians who are coming out of the woodwork saying, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. These Christians coming out of the woodwork saying, no, 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 Caesar's not in charge, Jesus is. He's not the divine son of God, Jesus is. And you can see immediately how this comes into conflict with culture. Because we've got the entire Roman Empire declaring that Caesar is Lord, and suddenly these people out of Nazareth start saying, no, the Nazarene, Jesus, he is Lord. They are making a conflicting claim, and here's the claim, that if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar isn't. And you can imagine in a culture that is obsessed with the idea that Caesar is Lord, and in order to be a good Roman citizen, you have to believe that Caesar is Lord. In that moment, Christians have claimed that there's actually someone higher and greater who has authority over Caesar whose allegiance they swear to. Now, no one in this room is particularly moved by the idea that Jesus is Lord, but Caesar isn't. No one in this room is moved by that because there is no Caesar in your world. There is no Caesar in your life. But here's what I need you to know clearly, that in your life, there are lords that claim to be Lord. There are powers that claim to be Lord. And here's how you'll know who's Lord of your life. You can write this down if you're taking notes. You will know, this won't be on the screen, but you will know who's Lord of your life by who you will never say no to. Whoever you will never say no to is the Lord of your life, irrespective of who you claim is the Lord of your life. Whoever or whatever you always say yes to, that is Lord. And for the earliest Christians, it was we're not always saying yes to Caesar, we're saying yes to Jesus. Jesus is Lord, so Caesar isn't. Can I give you four things in our culture that you need to learn to say no to who are not Lord? Listen, if Jesus is Lord, then sex isn't. We live in a culture that is obsessed with sex. We live in a culture that says the most important thing about you is your sexuality. We live in a culture that says the worst thing you can ever do is deny your sexual impulses. That you need to give in to your sexual impulses constantly and freely and always say yes to yourself. And here's what Christians say. Christians say we have a sexual impulse and it is a good gift of God, but it is not the king of my life. It does not own me. It does not run me. It does not control my life. Jesus does. And in a culture that says sex is king and everything is about sex, and if you deny someone or someone else's sexuality or your own sexuality, you're wrong, Christians are going to find themselves on the outs. Listen, if Jesus is Lord, then sex isn't. Number two, if Jesus is Lord, then money isn't. 
We live in a culture that is wrapped with the idea that the most important thing about you is the amount of money you make or the possessions you have or how much income you have, your status and your wealth and your income and your trajectory and how much you can present and project that to the world. We live in a culture, if you are a young professional who is working now, that says the most important thing about your life right now is your income and how much you're making. We live in a culture, students, college students, that tells you that the most important thing about your education is your earning potential in the future, as if learning things isn't good enough for itself. It's all about money. We live in a culture that is obsessed with money. And if you do not see that American culture is drenched in a materialist God, you're blind. And you need to know that to call Jesus Lord is to say, money isn't the Lord of my life. It's nice, it's lovely, it's a gift, it's a good thing I can celebrate, but it is not king, it is not Lord. It does not run my life. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar isn't, then sex isn't, then money isn't. Listen, if Jesus is Lord, then power isn't. Power. Uh, Again, we're in this culture that's just obsessed with power, political power, influence, media power, the ability to project and shape ideas. We're a culture that's obsessed with the idea of group power dynamics against each other. And if you are a Christian, your declaration is that the most important thing about this world and human beings is not power, but rather the one who is powerful over all. It is not power, but one, rather the one who chose to lay down his power for the sake of love. And that's the invitation for us. So again, if you're going to call Jesus Lord, it is to deny that the most important thing about your life is how much you can dominate other people. But like, young men, can I speak to you? Like, you are told so often that to be a man is to dominate other people, to be powerful, to be strong, to step on other people and push them down. And if you are a Christian, you reject that. That is not who you are. It's not who you're called to be. So listen, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. Sex isn't. Power isn't. Money isn't. Last thing, maybe the most important thing for you to hear, if Jesus is Lord, then the individual human isn't. In other words, if Jesus is Lord, then you aren't. And we are in a culture, again, that is obsessed with the idea that you are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your ship. No one tells you what to do. No one tells you where to go. You're in charge of your life. You make the call that's best for you. And if you are a Christian, you reject that and say, my life is not my own. It was bought with a price. It belongs to God. That's what we're called to do. So why are these Christians hated so deeply? These Christians are hated so deeply because they make the central claim that Jesus is Lord. He's king. And in fact, he's not just king of your life. I've said this before. You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life, right? He already is the Lord of your life. He already is the Lord of everything. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He's already the king of kings. He's already the Lord of lords. And as Christians, we declare this to the world. Jesus is in charge. Submit to him. And you know how people react to that? They hate it. You know the reason they hate it? Because all of us rage against threats to our perceived authority. It's like my three-year-old son, Noah. When my three-year-old son, Noah, gets home from certain things, he'll say, Daddy, I want to watch a show. And because I'm a benevolent, kind father who also needs a break, I say yes. And I let him watch a show. But he's also got an older sister, Grace, and she likes to watch Doc McStuffins, and he likes to watch Paw Patrol, and a fight ensues. And the problem with my son is he doesn't think I need to negotiate with my sister. He goes, we are watching Paw Patrol. And I'm like, excuse me, you have a sister and she has a different opinion. But you know what he thinks he has? Perceived authority. I can put this next slide up here. That we rage against our threats to his perceived authority. And so my son rages against me because he thinks he's in charge. It's the same for an individual who goes into their teacher. And they're so certain that they should be able to get an extension because of what happened to them. And their teacher says, no, I'm in charge here. You didn't turn it in. You fail. And we rage at the injustice of it. 
We rage at the injustice anytime we think we're in charge, but then someone else comes to us and says, no, 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 you're actually not in charge. Anytime a boss steps in and pulls the boss card and says, no, I'm in charge, you're not, we rage against that. And here's what we must know as Christians. When we declare that Jesus is Lord, the world is going to rage against it. Because the world, every other, we, we, we've declared ourselves God. That's the whole story of sin, by the way, in the Christian faith. The whole story of sin is God puts human beings in the garden and says, just let me be in charge and call the shots. And human beings are like, thank you very much, God, but I'm going to do my own thing. And we go our own way and wreck everything. That's the story of Christian faith. And that's the story of why they rage against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Verse 13 goes on this way. It says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you might be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of God, of glory, and of God rests on you. So, so here's what I want you to know. Uh, I've said this a couple weeks ago, but a couple weeks ago I stated that that most people just assume that, that suffering is something we just need to avoid and get away from, that suffering has no value, and especially if that suffering is unfair toward us, it's just the wrong kind of thing. But the Bible has the exact opposite view. That the Bible is going to insist here, when, when we rejoice in as much as we participate in the sufferings of Christ, like in other words, when we suffer for the sake of Jesus, when we suffer for our faith, when people hate us and despise us and don't include us, when people hate us and push against us, we're supposed to, it says, rejoice. And here's why. Most of us have the wrong view of suffering. Most of us think that people are unhappy in life because they are suffering, but that's not true. Let me say it this way, that suffering does not lead to despair. Suffering does not lead to despair. And why do I know this? I know this because let's just do show of hands. You get to kind of show off here. So this is like a show off moment in church. Who in the last month has gone out and exercised in any way, shape, or form? You ran, lift, well, quite a few of you. Okay, all right, very good. Some of you are like, oh, I'm shamed, right? Um, but it's, it's okay. God loves you. We love you. Um, but here's the deal. Like when you went to exercise, like you intentionally put your body under stress, you suffered, you got up early, or you stayed up late, or you ran, or you lifted weights, or you swam, or did yoga, or whatever you did, right? You did your thing, and you exercised, and you suffered, but it didn't feel like despair. Why? Because it was for a purpose. Like, you knew what that was going toward, right? You exercised, and it was painful, but you did so because you knew exactly where it was leading. Or it's like when kids go to the doctor, right? They get a shot, and they think it is just unnecessarily someone taking a dagger and stabbing it into their arm. But here's what we know. Kid gets a shot, it's to make them better, it's to help them through illness, it's to help them not be sick. And so what do we do? We recognize that suffering does not lead to despair if we know there's a purpose behind it. Suffering doesn't lead to despair, meaningless suffering leads to despair. It is a kind of suffering where we don't even know what it's for and there's no purpose and there's no meaning behind it and it's all a waste. And here's what Peter has to say to you. Your suffering is not a waste. When you are mocked and belittled and pushed against, when my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries are jailed and they lose their jobs and they get put in prison and killed and beaten and mocked for their faith that is not a waste. Why? What gives our suffering for Jesus meaning? I'm not just going to make up two things. I'm going to tell you what it says in verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 tells us clearly, you get closer to Christ. Verse 13, you participate in the suffering of Christ. Like somehow you and Jesus are in the same experience, in the same moment. When you suffer, when you are belittled, when you are mocked, when someone dismisses you as a Christian, when you suffer for the sake of following Jesus, you and Jesus get closer. And for some of you, you think it's the exact opposite. You're like, well, I'm suffering for the sake of Christ, and therefore I feel far from God. It's the exact opposite. 
And then number two, verse 14, the Holy Spirit gets closer to you. Like what if it was said about your life all the time that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you? And here's what we believe as Christians, that the Holy Spirit of God always lives inside of us, and yet there's this clear thing in the scriptures that sometimes God's presence manifests in our life in a meaningful and powerful and tangible way. And when you suffer, it says the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So the next time you suffer, the next time it's painful, the next time you don't know why, remind yourself and remind your spirit that in that moment, Jesus is drawing closer to you. The Holy Spirit is drawing closer to you. You are experiencing something powerful from God. It goes on in verse 15. It says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. And so one of my favorite things here is that um, Peter's going to give a vice list. And vice lists in the New Testament are like, here's all the bad sins you shouldn't do. He's like, don't murder, don't steal, and like, don't meddle in people's lives, right? He slips that in there because here's what he wants us to know, that there's no blessing for those who suffer justly. Like, I want you to know there's actually blessing for you in your life if you suffer for the sake of Christ. If you suffer unjustly, the entire letter of 1 Peter keeps saying, you are blessed. The spirit of God rests on you. He has reward for you. He has a life of blessing for you. But I need you to know there is no suffering for suffering justly. So let me put it two ways uh, that this text in verse 15 puts it. There's no blessing for criminality, okay? Um, so... If you steal from someone and you get in trouble for that, you do not get to throw up your hands and be like, God, I am suffering for you. God's like, no, you're suffering for you. <laughs> if you murder someone and get thrown in jail, you don't get to be like, I'm in prison for Christ in chains for the Lord. And he's like, no, right? That's not how it works at all. Like in other words, what, what Peter is trying to say is if you break the law, if you do bad things, if you do what is clearly and obviously wrong, you don't get to claim your suffering for Jesus. Now, some people are going to ask the question, okay, does, does that mean that we should never break the law? And what if God's law out? Yes, there are moments. There are moments. If the United States government said it is now illegal to pray, guess what? I'm going to be a criminal. So are most of you. So, so I get it. But, but what we need to do is recognize that Peter's point here isn't to think about all those crazy circumstances, but rather to say, if you're the type of person who is just raging against the law and harming people, there's no blessing for you in that. And here's the thing. I don't think that's most of your problems. Like if there's a lot of murderers in here, I'd be concerned, okay? Um, but let me tell you what is the problem for most of us, including me. I want you to know there's no blessing for meddling. For meddling, what's meddling? It's not a word we use a lot, right? But meddling is where you get involved in someone else's business that you have no business being involved in. And I'm sure no one in here has ever done that, but let me tell you a story when I did. So just out of college, I was um, in seminary, I was doing ministry here and just passionate about the Lord and passionate about this kind of newfound sense I had of who I was and God had called me to be this and I'm this guy who proclaims what is true and I do this. And then a dear friend of mine uh, who I also kind of considered a Christian brother uh, at that point in his life gets into a relationship with a girl and very quickly moves in with her and very quickly becomes sexually active with her. And, and listen, I, I just need to say this to this room. I, I just don't believe that behavior is consistent with Christian discipleship. And I know that's unpopular, and I know that's not something anyone wants to hear, perhaps in our day and age, but that is absolutely not consistent with Christian discipleship. But, but here's my problem in that moment. Um, I had every right, as someone as my brother, or someone I care about, to, to speak to him with clarity about that. Um, I had no right to meddle in his life and be cruel and unkind. I had no right to be kind of a judgmental jerk in his life, and that's exactly what I was. 
I called him out. I was mean to him. I was rude to him. I was condescending to him. I thought I was standing and contending for the Lord. I thought I was standing up for what was right. So I was just a jerk to him. And then he was a jerk back to me. It broke the relationship for a season. And thank God it's healed at this point. But it really just broke down that relationship. And I remember during the time being, well, that's what you get when you stand for Jesus, right? And I think if I could go back and tell myself, there's no blessing for meddling. And I'd say that to you too. So if you're the Christian who just like scans social media for anyone who ever says anything wrong ever and then jumps in with the rudest, meanest comment and people slash back at you, there's no blessing for you in that. Like you just being cantankerous. Listen, there's no blessing for you being a jerk, okay? There is no blessing for that. And so often we think we can just be jerks and mean and rude and judgmental and cruel in ways Jesus never was and then go, we were just standing for Jesus and everyone hates us. It's like, no, you aren't standing for anyone but you and your ego. That's not to say you should never speak up and it's not to say you shouldn't stand for what's true and it's not to say you should compromise your beliefs. But I'm just here confessing. I'm 22 years old. I'm speaking to a friend of mine. I was a jerk. I was meddling. And there's no blessing for that. Again, what Peter says here, he says, if you're going to suffer, don't let it be because you're meddling. Don't let it be because you're just sticking your nose into someone else's business to try to control their life to make you feel better about you. It goes on in verse 16. It says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, and it's really interesting here, there's only three times in the New Testament the word Christian is used. Sometimes it's follower of Jesus, it's followers of the way, but here it's Christian, which is simply someone who declares that Christ is Lord and not Caesar. It's Christ that's Lord and not anyone else. It says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time to, for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So, so I want to draw our attention to verse 17, where it says, judgment has to begin with God's household. And this can be a troubling verse for a lot of Christians. But because a lot of Christians have trained themselves to believe that God has forgiven me, God has given his son that I might be saved, I'm fully forgiven, I'm justified, I'm reconciled, and all of these things are true. All of these things are true, and yet what's clear in the scripture is that there is a judgment both for the believer and the unbeliever alike. So I'm going to speak to both right now. I told you earlier in the sermon, if you're not a believer, that you can kind of just be, be, be kind of just watching, because who knows? But here, I just need to speak to you clearly if you're a believer in Jesus, I need to speak to you clearly if you're not. Here's what I'm going to be clear on. The judgment for God's people, for Christians, is for purification. It is a judgment that makes us pure. It is a judgment that roots sin out of our life. It is a judgment that roots pride out of our life. I am not in the seat of God's judgment seat, and so I will never point to any individual life and say, that thing that's happening to you is God's judgment. That's God's job, not mine. When the Bible says don't judge, it means that we don't actually get to sit in the seat of God. But I will say this clearly that there are times and moments in your life, child of God, where God will judge you not to punish you, but to purify you, to make you holy. There have been times in my life I know God has removed things that I thought were so precious to me because I was actually worshiping that thing rather than God himself. I know there have been times in my life where God has put me through seasons of suffering, not because he hates me, but because he loves me. Times where I've felt doubt and insecurity, times where I've not been sure, times where I've actually had to be humbled to my knees because he wants to purify me. And so I want to be clear, child of God, um, that you need to have a patience for God to put you through different seasons, not because he hates you, 
but because he loves you. So the judgment for God's people is purification. And let me speak to you tonight if you're not a Christian. I don't even know how many of you there might be in this room. I'm just glad you're here. And here's what I need you to know. This is my job as a preacher to say that the judgment for the ungodly is punishment. It's punishment. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that every single human being is created in the image of God. I want everyone in this room to know that God loves you, God created you, and God knows you. And the great story of the scripture, as I described earlier, is that the God of the universe created us and said, here's how I want you to live, and that Adam and Eve are first parents, and that everyone who's ever lived since has done the same thing. We've gone, forget you, God. I'm going my own direction, and we've done our own thing. And here's what the scriptures tell us. That God's punishment for us isn't him like sending lightning bolts out of the sky because he's mad. God's great punishment for us is to say, if you are going to walk away from me, I will allow you to do that all the way into eternity. So here's what I want you to know. When we talk about the punishment for the person who says, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, the Bible has a word for that, and I'm gonna go right to that word tonight. The Bible's word for the punishment for those who want nothing to do with God in this life or the next is the word hell. And tonight, I want to teach to you on hell. Because I want you to understand what Peter is talking about here. That there is a kind of judgment, a kind of punishment, or a kind of judgment that comes to the people of God that purifies us. But there is a kind of judgment that comes to the person that says, forget you, God. I'm walking in my sin. I'm walking in my life. I'm doing my own thing. I need you to know about hell. Number one, I need you to know hell is real. It's not a joke. It's not something I made up. It's not something preachers use to control or manipulate. If hell wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't teach on it. It's not something I want to teach on. It's not something I'm excited about. It's not some fairy tale we make up to control people. It's something God clearly and evidently says is a reality in the scriptures. Number two, I want you to know hell's not a joke. And most jokes kind of go like you're up in heaven golfing and you're in hell having beer and playing poker. Like, I, I just like... Like, it's just something about that that, like, eases us a little because we're like, oh, it doesn't matter where we go. I'm either golfing or poker. But that's not it at all. It's not a joke. It's not some silly punchline. Hell is real. Hell is not a joke. Listen, hell is separation from God. So the person who says, forget you, God, my will be done, not yours, God goes, okay, you go, and allows them to walk in this direction into darkness for all of eternity. So hell is separation from God, but hell is also judgment for sin. And I want to be clear that the Bible says that sin is us choosing to act in accordance with our own ways rather than God's. It is us falling short of God's glory and his standard. Us saying, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. I'm setting my own rules. It is separation. It is judgment. And then the final thing I need to know, it's eternal. Like the Bible just teaches that it will go on forever and ever. And that you can only spend eternity in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. Listen, I... I'm not like excited to teach about this. This isn't my favorite thing. I just see it so evidently in the scriptures and I just don't want a generation to raise up not knowing what God says to those who go, forget you, I'm doing my own thing. But then if you're writing notes, here's the most important thing you need to know about hell tonight. The most important thing you know, need to know about hell is hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. Not somewhere anyone has to go. So if you're in the room tonight and you're going, that's me. I turned my back on God. I'm doing my own thing. The best news in the universe I can tell you is that you do not have to experience that punishment. You do not have to experience that judgment. There is a God who sees you and knows you and loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross and be separated out from God. 
On the cross, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus is experiencing the separation from God that you and I deserve. He dies on the cross. He pays for your sins. He rises from the dead to show salvation is possible. And he extends that invitation of salvation to you. If you do not know God, if you have said forget you, God, and gone in your own direction, can I tell you the best news in the world tonight? That you can turn around from that tonight. And there's a God who will receive you with open arms. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what everyone means? It means you. It means everyone. It means the person who's been walking away from God for 10 minutes or 10 years. It's the person who turned away from God and knows they've done everything wrong. The scriptures say that in the moment you plant your foot in the ground and you turn and you turn back to God, that God has open arms and he receives you with love and grace because that's what my God is like. You want to know what God is like? God is the kind of God who receives sinners who return to him. Tonight, I want to encourage you if you're in this room and you don't know God, maybe years ago or maybe months ago, you went, forget you, God. I'm going in my own direction. You don't need me. You don't need any other person. You can call on the name of the Lord in your chair right now. You call out to that God and you say, God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to help me. I need you to come. I need you to save me from this. Maybe you don't have, maybe you're too prideful to pray that tonight, but maybe some moment in desperation, you would turn to a God who says, if you call on my name, you will be saved. Don't leave here without knowing that there's a God who can save you, a God who can rescue you, that hell is real and hell is eternal, but there's no one in this room who has to go there. No one at all. Here's verse 19, and here's how it'll close tonight. It says this, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to a faithful creator, their faithful creator, and continue to do good. So I want you to notice here in verse 19, it says, so then, so he's going to conclude this whole thought. He's going to say, those who suffer according to God's will, you know what the assumption is about your life? You follow Jesus long enough, you'll suffer. And again, we said at the beginning, most Christians assume if I follow Jesus long enough, I won't suffer anymore. It's the exact opposite. The further you push in, the more suffering you will find in this life. And again and again and again, the scriptures are going to say that that suffering is worth it. But, but, but here's what I need us to do. Uh, I need us to recognize that suffering is coming. And, and I just need us to have some awareness that, that suffering just, I'm, I'm actually talking to like us right now, our generation, Western culture, all of that. That suffering could get worse. And, and listen, I, I know Christians who kind of wave the flag of like, it's about to get real bad. In the next couple of years, they're rounding up Christians. They're throwing us in jail. They're going to start killing us right here in America. It's going to happen. You watch. And, and here's what I want you to know my response to that is, I just think it's wildly overblown. Like, wildly. I, I'm not saying I'm happy with the direction of our country. I, I'm not saying nothing bad could possibly happen. I'm not saying that's not happening all over the world in different places. I, I'm just saying that there is a certain kind of Christian voice in America that's primary desire is to make you afraid. And I want you to be aware of that. So like, I want you to be aware that, yeah, there could be more persecution, more pushback. It could actually get ugly. There could be a day before we die where things are bad. But I just don't want you to give into the voices that's primary job is to make you afraid and angry. Like, here's what I remember. Fall of 2008, I was studying abroad in London. Uh, and that was an election where, where most of you were, were too young to vote. But it was the first election that I was able to vote in. And so I remember following the election closely. And that election was between John McCain and Barack Obama. Now, now, really, to me, in this moment, I just need to be clear, doesn't matter what you think of either of those individuals, okay? I'm like not here for a political discussion. I'm here to tell you the story uh, of me reading a major Christian organization put out this piece in the fall of 2008 that said a letter to America in 2012. 
So the idea was, if this candidate wins, here's what America is going to look like in the next four years. And they put out in that letter 36 specific predictions of how Christians would just be crushed and the world would end and everything would be terrible. 36 specific predictions. Out of those 36 by 2012, here's what's nice. We've passed 2012. We're 11 years past 2012. You know how many of those 36 came true? Three. And only kind of. Really like two and a half. Sort of. That's like an 8% rate, okay? That's terrible. That's failure. That's nothing. But you know what the purpose of that was? It wasn't to tell the future. It was to make you afraid so they can control you. That was the purpose. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to know that there might be persecution coming. I want you to know that some of that's coming your way. I just want you to avoid the voices that seem to primarily worry about whether they get you angry, whether they get you afraid, whether they can control you through that. Because here's what I want you to know, that the right response to a hostile world is not fear and anger. It's not And if you kind of approach the world like, man, things are getting bad, and you're just afraid of it, and you're angry at everyone all the time, man, you will find yourself miserable, and you will accomplish nothing for the sake of the Lord. But verse 19 says this. Could we actually go back to this on the screen? I want you to know in verse 19 what the right response to a hostile world is. Verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will, those who live in a culture that is increasingly becoming post-Christian, those who live in a culture that is increasingly rejecting the values of the Bible, what should you do? You should be angry. You should be afraid. You should fight back. You should punch them twice as hard. Nope. Two things you need to do. The right response to the hostile world is two things. Number one, trust God. Trust God. I want you to trust God. I want you to believe that God is who he says he is. I want you to believe that God can do what he said he can do. I want you to trust God in the midst of it. I want you to remember three things about God. Number one, I want you to remember his knowledge. I want you to know that God knows everything. There is absolutely nothing happening in America, in your life, in your family, in our culture, in our church that God is not aware of. God knows everything. It says, number one, trust and remember God's knowledge. Number two, remember God's desire. Remember God's desire. He is for you. He is with you. He is on your side. There are times in life where I do not love people and I do not help people because I do not have the desire to do so. I've shared that there are certain television shows my children ask to watch and I pretend I don't know how to work the remote because I have no desire to watch those shows with them. But your God is not the same way. Your God has every desire to help you. He knows what you need. He has the desire to help you. And here's the most important thing about your God. Remember God's capacity. Remember that he can do anything he wants. Why do I trust God? Why do I not panic even though culture's going this way and people aren't believing the Bible and everything seems to be changing? Why do I not panic in the midst of a technological revolution and AR and VR and all the technology? Why? Because of God's knowledge. He knows exactly what's happening. Because of God's desire, he knows exactly who his people are and he wants to help us. And number three, God's got capacity. He's got everything. God ain't scared of anything. He's on my side, I'm on his, and I'm not afraid of the future. That's what we're called to. What does Peter say? In the midst of a hostile world, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a changing world, number one, we trust God. And number two, what do we do? We do good. Don't you love how Peter doesn't say anything like super sophisticated? He's not like, and make sure to theologically, blah, blah. he just goes, yeah, do good things, right? Or like, yeah, what? like good things as opposed to he's like bad things. Like just do good things. And it's like, what are you supposed to do? Trust God and do good things. And so like, what is doing good things? Well, here at Calvary, we talk about it in three ways. Number one, love God more. Love God more, which means love your sin a little less. Repent of your sin, turn from your sin. If you're doing things that are wicked according to the scripture, turn, repent from that, confess it, and turn back to Jesus. Read your Bible, know the word, know what God has to say. 
There are 100,000 voices that are up in your face every day. When you wake up and turn on your phone, there are voices screaming at you. Find a way to silence those and listen to God's voice. Learn to pray. Learn to fast. Learn to seek God's face. Learn to love the church. Learn to show up. Learn to worship. Learn to worship in such a way that you're not just singing songs, but you're actually expressing the worth and the value of God through your entire body. Learn to come into a place like this and stop worrying what everyone else is thinking about you and learn to love your God more because what you'll find is no one's thinking about you, but your God is. And he cares what's going on during worship. Number one, love God more. Number two, love God's family more. How do you do good? You learn to love these people more. You learn to show up and meet people and get to know each other's names. You show up even when it's hard. You show up even when it's not easy. You lean in. You get into Bible studies. You get into communities. Listen, if you're new tonight, the easiest way for you to accomplish loving God's family more is for you to hang out after at late night. If you don't know what late night is, it's just like us hanging out a little later into the night. We're very sophisticated here at YA. And there's nachos, so there's no excuse. So just come, hang, get to know someone. And and here's what I've learned in this room. Everyone rolls into this room thinking everyone here has friends except me. And then the person sitting like three seats away is like, everyone here has friends except me. And I've learned that if you would just stick out your hand and say, hi, my name is Brian and I don't have any friends, I'd like to meet you, that you will be welcomed in. And if you meet the one person who's kind of kooky, try again, right? (laughs) You love God's family more. How do you do good in this world? You lean into a local church and in a world that says the most important thing is that you are an autonomous individual who stands on your own, you say, no, sir, I am part of the family of God and I stand with them. That's what you do. Love God more. Love God's family more. Finally, love your neighbors more. Love them. Care for them. Probably starts with getting to know your neighbor's names. Some of you are like, I have never spoken to my neighbor and I never will. Try better. Get to know them. Say hi. Figure out what's going on with their life, their kids, their spouse, their family. Maybe they don't have that. Maybe it's roommates. Maybe you invite them to church. You love your neighbor. You pray for your neighbor. You care about your neighbor. You serve your neighbor. You're like, what if they believe things I don't? Love them anyway. What if they're sinners? Definitely love them anyway. What if they annoy me? For sure love them anyway. Double down on it. You love the people in your life. You love the people around you. You do good to the world. And you don't do good to the world with some kind of agenda. You just love them. You're not like, well, if I do good to the world, maybe what'll happen. No, you just say, I'm going to love you like Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. We are called to do good. See, Peter knows there's a hostile world, and, and, and quite frankly, Peter's world is far more hostile than ours. Like, like I just, in America, I, I know there are Christians who are mocked and belittled and sometimes hated and all those different things. But I know of no Christians who have been tied to like the city post in front of City Hall and lit on fire as a human torch. That's happening in countries all around the world. So I just don't want to downplay that. I just want to say in your context, in your culture, that is not happening. And so here's what Peter says. In a far more hostile culture, what are the two things you need to do for the rest of your life as American culture gets more squirrely and technology changes and the world is weird and everything's upside down? Trust God and do good. Just make those the marching orders for your life. That's what we mean by living and loving like Jesus. See, here's what happened for Peter. Peter is following after Jesus. He denies Jesus. He hides from Jesus. He runs from Jesus. But then here's the best thing about Jesus. Remember I said earlier that the person who kind of like runs away from Jesus, that when they turn, they'll see him there? So this is what happened to Peter. He goes back to his old life. He's like, well, Jesus didn't work out, so I'll go back to fishing. And he goes back to fishing, and then suddenly he's out fishing, and what happens? Jesus shows up. Because the crazy thing about my God is you can run as far from him as you think you can, but if you turn around, you'll realize he never stopped chasing after you. Like, I just want to speak to the person tonight who feels like they're running from God. God's like a step behind you, and if you would just stop and take a beat, he's right there. 
And that's what the story of Peter is. And Jesus restores Peter, and not just restores him, he builds him up. He's one of the first preachers in the church. He's one of the first leaders. He writes these books in the New Testament. He gives us insight on what it means to follow Jesus. And you want to know the crazy thing about Peter's life? The, the New Testament ends and Peter is still alive. But here's what church history tells us. Church history tells us that of the 12 disciples of Jesus, 11 of them are brutally murdered. And the one who makes it out not brutally murdered is exiled to a rock in the middle of the ocean, okay? So it doesn't end well for any of them. And for Peter, it's especially bad. Here's what the scripture, not what the scripture is, what church tradition and history tells us, um, that Peter was crucified just like Jesus was. That's how they killed him. They were so angry at Peter for spreading this message that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was king, that Jesus was in charge and not Caesar, that they decided to crucify him. But his final request before he died was, please do not let me be killed in the manner that my Lord was. I'm not worthy of that. Please crucify me upside down. So they did. And that's exactly how Peter's life ended. Now, here's a little thought experiment for you. It's a hundred million years from now. You are in glory in heaven. And you see Peter. And you go, Peter, you lived this whole life. You tried to do good and trust God and they crucified you upside down. Like, was it worth it? Was it worth it, Peter? You gotta imagine a hundred million years from now, you look at him, he's had a hundred million years to think about it. And I think Peter, a hundred million years from now, will look you in the face and go, it was all worth it. It will all be worth it. I think Peter would look at you and tell you every bit of suffering, every moment, everything he experienced in light of the glory you will now be in, in light of the glory you will be in before Jesus, you will look back on the shadows of this world and the worst moments, the deepest persecutions, and you will go, it will all be worth it. And that's what I want you to know. Following Jesus, whatever it costs you, whatever it takes from you, you will gain back a million-fold in glory. It will all be worth it. Our band's going to make their way up. And, and, and here's what I want you to do tonight before we come to sing. Um, I want you to take this moment and recognize whether you do, in fact, see Jesus as worth it. Because I, I think once you recognize that Jesus isn't just true, he isn't just correct, he isn't just theologically accurate, but he's actually worth every part of your life, that's when worship explodes in your life. I said earlier that worship is ascribing worth to God, ascribing glory to God, ascribing weight to God, that you are small and God is big, that he is great and you are not. And that's what happens when it's all worth it to you. So here's the invitation tonight. If you don't know Jesus, if you've been running away from him, tonight, as we sing in worship, cry out to the Lord your God. The scriptures say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Tonight, you can be saved and made right with him. And to everyone else who is a Christian, my invitation for you is simply this, that you would worship tonight, that you would worship with your whole self, ascribing worth to the God, to the Jesus, who a hundred million years from now, you will declare with all of the saints throughout the ages that he is worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight and thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter and the lesson he teaches us. Thank you for Peter and the life he led. God, I pray that we would have the same kind of courage and clarity and awareness of who you are, the same kind of awareness of your worth, of your infinite value in our life. God, I pray for the young man or woman in this room who needs to turn to you tonight. I pray they would do that. I pray that we, there would be people calling on the name of the Lord in this place tonight. And I pray for any of us who know you and love you. God, may we worship with our whole selves because you are worth it. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said real loud.